this goes well. It's the first time I'm doing slides, and it's much bigger than I thought it would be. So thank you all for coming. Um, what I'm going to do tonight is, is uh, read a little bit from the book and then uh, hopefully open it up to questions. Um, what I wanted to do is really give a sense of what it was like for these guys to, to um, be in the combat tours that they were in and how that led to so much violence here at home. Um, why were we seeing so many murders in Colorado Springs? That's sort of the central question that this book started with. I was working at the Colorado Springs Gazette as a reporter in 2008 um, when we started seeing really in 2008 and 2007 a steady stream of, of one soldier after another getting arrested for pretty random and horrific crimes. Uh, two machine gunners and their 21-year-old medic were arrested for killing two other soldiers uh, and stabbing a woman, as well as doing a lot of drive-by shootings for really unclear reasons. Uh, a few months later, two snipers, or sorry, two scouts from the sniper platoon uh, randomly drove around, essentially sniping people, uh, shooting three and, and killing two, none of whom they knew. Um, a few months after that, a decorated soldier beat his girlfriend to death. Another shot a pregnant woman. Another slit the throat of a woman and left her on Old Stage Road. He was actually just sentenced this week. We saw all this stuff coming through the newsroom, and we wrote about it. We wrote about what the cops said about him. We wrote about what happened in court, but we weren't really getting to the central question, which was, why are we seeing all these murders? When we started to feel out the army on this, that sort of the official response was, look, in any population, you're going to see some criminal element. You know, there are always bad apples in the bunch. Um, but when we started looking at it at the paper in terms of numbers, that didn't really make sense. Now, the homicides I, I mentioned to you, it was only five homicides in a year. But when we looked at it, it all came out of one battalion. That's only, a battalion is about 500 guys, 500 to 700. So it was five murders was a tenth of all the murders in that 12-month period in our city, coming out of less than a thousand, thousand population. It wasn't just bad apples. There was something much, much bigger than, than that going on. And so I said, well, who would know what's going on? Um, the Army is not going to officially at least tell you what's going on if, if they know. Um, the uh, police have ongoing investigations. They aren't going to tell you until everything's said and done. The lawyers who are working these cases slowly through court, again, have to protect their clients. And so I figured the only people that are really knew what's going on and could really tell this story is the guys themselves. Um, and so I started writing letters to guys who were sitting in prison for murder or attempted murder, and, and a surprising number of them said, yes, I would like to talk to you. And I, I remember sitting down across from two of these guys, and they said, you know, they were telling me really horrendous stories of what their tours had been like in, in Iraq. It was almost too much to believe. And I said, okay, who else was there who could corroborate things? And, and their answers were really shocking. One of them, uh, Kenny Eastridge, who when he 
um, he said, well, uh, you could talk to Josh Butler, but he's in prison. Uh, you could talk to Jose Barco, but he's in prison. Um, you know, my friends Bressler and Bastion are in prison. Most of the guys, or certainly a large number of the guys that were in his platoon that had been there with him had experienced the things that Lucas had experienced. They'd either been kicked out of the army for, for drugs or, or kicked out for a pre-existing uh, mental disorder that they didn't have before uh, or were in jail. And it seemed to me that like this wasn't just the story of guys that were sitting in prison. It was the story of this whole unit. And what I learned when I sat down and talked to those guys in prison and then started connecting with their friends who were sitting outside uh, one of them is here tonight. Um, what I learned is that they were all part of um, one battalion of about 500 to 700 guys uh, that had been sent twice to the worst places in the world. First in 2004 to the Sunni Triangle, right when it was the heart of the insurgency, and then again to Baghdad in 2006, right when, 2006-2007, right when Back here, we were all talking about, gosh, there's so much fighting between the, the Sunnis and the Shia there that should we start calling it a civil war or not? They were in the middle of it, and they took casualties at four times the average for other combat brigade or units. They, they went through the worst of the worst. Uh, and when they came home, they came home to um, uh, an army base that was not ready to... to do anything meaningful and, and strategic to really help them out. There were systems in place, but they didn't work, and a lot of guys fell through the tra cracks. This is a battalion that probably a lot of you have heard of if you've uh, read Stephen Ambrose's book by the same name or you've uh, watched the miniseries on HBO. They were the first of the 506 Infantry, um, better known as the Band of Brothers. But through uh, the war, they ended up changing their name, or the Army changed their name. They became the Lethal Warriors. This is their story of what happened. Uh, I wanted to tell it because uh, there's so much turnover at Fort Carson. So many people are there for a few years and then gone, uh, even in the highest parts of command, that memory's really short. Uh, and it seemed to me that we needed someone to bear witness, to really sort of plant a flag and say, this happened, this is why it happened, and here's some of the things that we can try to do to keep it from happening again. And I also wanted to tell that story to people in the country so that they could better understand a war that we see mostly through headlines but don't really understand it, how, how a lot of these guys saw it on the ground, how different it was, how much more complex it was. Before I start, I want to thank, there. this is the first time I've done a, a reading where there's one of the guys, two, two of the guys in the book are actually in the audience. And I want to thank them for coming and let you know that it makes me nervous to have you here. Uh, also, to thank CC, you know, CC and the Gazette probably seem to have very little in common, especially politics. Uh, but we do have one very important thing in common, which is that we are both share the same founder, which is William Jackson Palmer, who did most of the great lasting things to build Colorado Springs. So I would like to think that he would be happy to see us uh, working together. So what I'm going to do is uh, 
do three short readings through time. All of them sort of follow uh, the experiences of this man, Kenny Eastridge. This picture's taken in uh, early 2004, I believe, um, uh, when his unit, the Band of Brothers, was stationed in Korea, guarding against an invasion from North Korea. You can see they still have the green camouflage on before they moved to the desert. Uh, Kenny uh, was a kid who uh, came from rural um, Kentucky and wanted to be in the infantry. A lot of his family had been. Uh, generally a nice, uh, liked guy, wanted to be career armed. Uh, before I start reading, I have a couple vocab words. I'm sorry to do this to you guys. Um, I'm going to mention something called a saw, and I'm not talking about something that cuts wood. Kenny was assigned to carry something called a squad automatic weapon, or saw, which is essentially a, a sort of medium-weight machine gun. Um, Kenny and his, his platoon was assigned to patrol something called Route Michigan, which is a modern uh, uh, divided highway, much like I-25, that cut from through the desert from Baghdad to Ramadi. And when the American Army came in, they renamed every major route in Iraq using uh, uh, college football teams. So this is the Michigan Wolverines that Route Michigan was named after. And then finally, these guys, they, they inherited this stretch of desert highway that you know, was full of uh, sort of post-apocalyptic looking villages, burned out cars, smashed buildings. And it looks so much like one of their one of the 80s movies they were all familiar with that they called their mission Operation Mad Max. And what that meant is that they would patrol Route Michigan all day, making sure there was no terrorist threat. Uh, I'll just say one more thing, which is that the language these guys used is maybe not the language I would use when being invited to uh, lecture at CC. However, when you hear it, you'll know you're getting the, the, the real thing without any filtering. So I'm going to take you back to November 2004, when these guys were in the western part of Iraq on Route Michigan, and they had just seen a sudden upsurge in uh, attacks from the insurgency. The Band of Brothers were convinced the sudden escalation of hostilities could only be caused by one thing. Four days prior, the United States had launched a massive assault on Fallujah, just a few miles down the road in a second attempt to take the city back from insurgents. 15,000 troops surrounded the city and took several key bridges blocking any retreat. Then they blasted heavy metal from loudspeakers for days and rocked the city with earth-rumbling air and artillery assaults that damaged an estimated 40,000 homes and destroyed another 10,000 completely. Ground troops went in later that night. Eventually, they took back Fallujah, but for the soldiers patrolling Route Michigan, it was as if someone had jabbed a stick in a hornet's nest. Whether the hornets on Route Michigan were swarming out of the nest or flying back to protect it, the troops weren't sure. They just knew they were pissed. By the end of the week, when Kenny Eastridge learned his platoon was going back for three days of Mad Max, everyone was on edge. The platoon had been trained early on to protect themselves from ambushes by watching for anything that was out of the ordinary. The problem was, they also learned pretty quickly that almost everything in their corner of Iraq was out of the ordinary. 
Every day, the soldiers struggled to find meaningful hints of what was normal in their patrol areas. Three people dressed head to toe in black robes, their faces covered except for glaring eyes. Was that normal? Seven men in headscarves packed into a tiny taxi. Was that normal? A burning mound of trash in the middle of a neighborhood with goats foraging around the edges. Was that normal? And then some of the things that appeared the most normal were the most deadly. A person on a cell phone, a boy on a bicycle, a lone driver in a car, three teenagers in tracksuits or a clear strip of highway. Any of them could be a sign of an imminent attack or not. There was no normal. The first few weeks you're there, you have a huge fear of dying. You're hyper alert. A private from Louisiana named David Nash said, remembering his reaction. But at some point, you just don't care anymore. You accept your fate. You wake up in the morning and you say, yep, I feel it. This is the day I get my ass whacked. On November 11th, Kenny Eastridge had that feeling. Several hours into their patrol, the platoon's captain called on the radio. The battalion had a tip that a group of insurgents in a car packed with explosives was on its way from Ramadi to Fallujah. He wanted to meet the platoon just west of a little town called Chaldea to set up a roadblock. So the platoon rolled down their stretch of Route Michigan, just blocks from a mosque that they had raided the day before. They parked their three Humvees along the side of the highway at about 1 p.m. and began to block off all traffic coming out of Ramadi. Jose Barco, just 18, and two other soldiers pulled on their leather gloves. They heaved a big coil of razor wire off the hood of one of the trucks and began stringing it across the pavement. Kenny Eastridge stood guard a few feet away with his big saw gun at the ready. On his, on his side of the street, a few bullet-riddled houses baked in the sun. On the other side, a cluster of pathetic-looking shops rippled in the heat, their owners staring at the soldiers through the windows. Eastridge's job was to stand over his sergeant, Sean Huey, while the sergeant directed the traffic search. At the moment, Huey was conferring with the platoon sergeant about where to put an observation post. The street was full of people and cars, women in long black hijabs ambled in and out of the shops. A group of children played nearby in the dust. If this was normal, if there was normal, this looked close to it. It was a sign, despite the previous days of violence, that all was well. The platoon's medic, Brian Krebs, walked up to Eastridge and asked the platoon sergeant if he'd mind if he went and had a cigarette. The sergeant replied that Krebs knew soldiers were not allowed to smoke in public, and since the captain was there, he had to be strict about the rules. He nodded his head towards a Humvee 50 yards up the road where the company commander had just pulled up. The captain was adamant that the soldiers present a face of professionalism and respect to the civilians, and that meant, among other things, no smoking. On the other hand, the platoon had been out on their ship for hours, and Doc Krebs said he really needed a smoke. Eastridge, the sergeant said, go take Krebs down the alley so he can have a smoke. Eastridge and Krebs ducked past the platoon sergeant's Humvee, which was parked at the mouth of a narrow mud-brick alley, and walked several paces down the corridor to sit on the toppled wall of a half-destroyed house. On the wide lanes of Michigan, Jose Barco pulled the dancing coil of razor wire, a 
across the hot pavement. Other soldiers stood in the wave of heat with hands resting on their rifles. A group of Iraqi men who had been circled in a tense conversation on the far side of the road walked up to Barco and the others, stringing a wire and asked them to move the Humvee blocking the alley so locals could get through to their houses. The platoon sergeant looked at the Iraqis. He looked at the Humvee in the alley. Then he told them they'd have to go around. The truck wasn't moving. So the men hurried back across the highway, arguing in Arabic. Hey, Barco, can I borrow your gloves? The soldier said. Barco turned his head to answer. It was the last thing he remembers. At that moment, a suicide bomber speeding down Route Michigan veered across the median, aimed at the Humvee blocking the alley, and released his detonation trigger. Instantly, a flash of heat and concussion shattered the shop windows. Soldiers felt it before they heard it, as a shockwave slapped them to the ground. Glass and metal flew everywhere. Fire swallowed the roadblock. The force ripped up the alley and hurled crabs and Eastridge to the dirt. They were hit so hard that at first they thought someone had dropped a grenade on them. Everyone lay dazed in a fog of dust as their shaken brains reset. It lasted only a second or two, but seemed to stretch for minutes. Are you okay? Eastridge finally said to the medic as he pulled himself up to his knees. The medic started patting himself for holes. I don't know, am I? He said. Yeah, Eastridge said. He started patting himself, too. Am I? Krebs scanned Eastridge for wounds, and his eyes glanced up over his head to a huge cloud of thick, black smoke rising over the street. Oh, fuck. Oh, fuck, Krebs shouted. Eastridge whipped around and saw the oily smoke. He and Krebs turned, and they sprinted down the alley into the black cloud. Confusion hung as thick as the smoke. The Army's combat medic training had drilled decision-making tools needed to sort through this type of bloody chaos into Krebs over and over. But nothing prepared him for what he saw. He followed Eastridge as they squeezed past the mangled, burning wreck of the Humvee. The suicide bomber's car was nowhere to be seen. The blast had destroyed it almost completely. As Krebs and Eastridge edged into the street, tiny pieces of metal pelted down through the mist and smoke like scorching rain. Silhouettes of bodies materialized in the haze, some moving, some not. An Iraqi woman appeared through the gloom, weeping as she tried to drag two children out of the road. The limp, ragged bodies had been cut into pieces, limbs left on the asphalt in the sickening slick of oil, fuel, and blood. Krebs groped past the woman and farther into the kill zone. The strict priorities of a combat medic mandated that American soldiers are always treated first. From every direction, members of the platoon dashed towards the blast site while wailing civilians stumbled away. Krebs and Eastridge found the platoon sergeant yelling for soldiers to get their rifles up and ready for another attack. The sergeant sat on the ground with his hands raised in the air. It looked to Eastridge like several of his fingers hung by only strips of skin. Blood streamed from his mouth. Shrapnel had torn open his calf, leaving ribbons of red muscle. Spreading blotches of blood on his uniform showed where shards of the now-obliterated car had shot into his body. All Army medics are trained to divide casualties into three simple categories. Those who are going to make it, no matter what you do. Those who are not going to make it, no matter what you do. 
and those who are going to make it or not, depending on what you do at that moment. Medics are told to ignore the first two and focus on the last. Bloody or not, the sergeant was going to live, at least for now. Krebs told a nearby soldier to give the sergeant some morphine, bandage his wounds, and then he pushed on. Krebs passed another soldier whose cheek had been sliced open by shrapnel and hung down, revealing the bloody jaw and teeth. A shard of metal was stuck in his jawbone. He, too, was going to make it. Krebs kept going to another soldier who was bleeding from his face and eyes and yelling, I can't see, I can't see. He was going to make it. The medic hurried towards a pile of burning wreckage where the captain and some other soldiers, half obscured by acrid smoke, were wrestling blistering hot razor wire off of a tangle of, wire, a tangle of soldiers. He took a half step towards the car, then saw his and, and Eastridge's squad leader, Sergeant Huey, who had been standing just a few feet away, crumpled to the ground. The medic hurried over and knelt down. He saw blood spurting from the sergeant's left thigh. Huey was paper white and gulping air like a trout. Krebs probed along his right thigh. A chunk of car had punched him through both legs, right below the pelvis, clipping both femoral arteries. Blood was flooding out in a spreading pool on the ground. If he didn't get care right now, he was not going to make it. Krebs tried to apply pressure to stop the bleeding and watched as half of his hand sunk into the wound. He tried again. Huey's breathing was growing shallower. Krebs yelled for Eastridge's roommate, a guy from Texas named, named Josh Butler, and said, I need you to breathe for him while I hold pressure. Eastridge stood near them, scanning his saw along the bullet-pocked buildings glaring down at Route Michigan. He was waiting for the rest of the ambush. His barrel passed over Krebs and Butler frantically working on his favorite sergeant. It passed over charred, ragged Iraqis bleeding on the road. It passed over the smoking wreckage where a soldier with blood dripping from cuts on his face was yelling, They're burning! They're burning! Help me, they're burning! In the wreckage, Eastridge's eyes fell on his friend Jose Barco. The 19-year-old Cuban kid from Miami was pinned by a, the flaming front end of a suicide car. Eastridge watched Barco heave away the wreckage with the help of two soldiers. Then somehow the private stood up, wobbling in shock, blood soaking from his uniform from a hundred jagged bits of car that had hit him like a shotgun blast. Eastridge heard Barco start yelling, I'll kill those motherfuckers. I'll kill those motherfuckers. Give me my weapon and I'll kill those motherfuckers. Half of his uniform was still on fire. Eastridge kept his gun leveled on the growing crowd of locals, gathering on the scene to collect their dead. Little scraps of flesh that had once been the suicide bomber now littered the road. A couple of platoons from another company arrived and split up, so half could control the crowd while the others scoured the surrounding alleys for the attackers. Eastridge watched his captain walk slowly out into the open dirt median of the highway, oblivious of the danger of the open road, and kneel by a limp body. It was an Iraqi boy who looked to be about six. A pool of blood surrounded his body, and the whole right side of his head was smashed in like a flat basketball. The captain searched for a pulse. Then he looked down at the ground and began to weep. When the captain stood up, he told his sergeants that no one in the platoon was leaving until after sundown. They were going to guard the chunks of the suicide bomber, bomber's body now slung all over the block. In the Muslim faith, the captain explained, a 
person must be buried before sundown to go to heaven. He suspected that the friends of the bomber were waiting in the wings to bury their latest martyr. The band of brothers was not going to let that happen. They stayed for hours guarding the gruesome scene. A few locals tried to collect pieces of the suicide bomber's body in buckets. The soldiers raised their rifles and ordered them to dump the buckets back on the asphalt. I'm going to skip a uh, few paragraphs, but in them, Sergeant Huey is uh, taken to the hospital but dies there or dies on the way. As the sun went down, Eastridge tried to keep himself squared away. He was guarding the same alley where the blast had knocked him to the dirt. Now, in the failing light, a spine lay in the narrow passage between the walls. No flesh, no ribs, no explanation, just a human spine. Eastridge's battalion had spent months preparing for Iraq, and here they were, totally unprepared. He had been trained to shoot as an infantryman, and he had been in an attack that had wounded several soldiers and killed the man whom he counted on most. But he had not been able to fire a shot in defense. Guns were almost useless on Route Michigan. There was no good way to defend against a roadside bomb or a suicide bomber. All the training to outshoot, outmaneuver, and outthink enemy soldiers proved futile. Because the enemy in Iraq was not a soldier, he was a shadow, a disease that wafted invisibly through the civilian population. It made Eastridge furious. It made him furious that the locals let these scumbags hide in their midst. It made him furious that they had killed Sergeant Huey, his mentor, his leader, the one he looked to for answers. And now Sergeant Strickland, his platoon sergeant, was out of the picture too with wounds. They still had eight months left in Iraq, Eastridge thought to himself. Who would leave the platoon? What would they do? He felt faint. He put his hand down on a crumbled wall to steady himself and felt something warm and wet in his palm. He had leaned into a piece of lung or liver or something. He didn't know what. Oh, God, he said, jerking his hand back and wiping the blood in a smear down the wall. This was not what he had signed up for. He felt even fainter. And so he went to steady himself and put his hand right in, back in the liver. This is, uh, this is the, probably the most graphic scene in the book, and I read it because I really want you guys to have a sense of what these guys went through, but not just what they went through, but imagine having that day, and then what you have to do the next day is go back out on Route Michigan, and the day after that, and go back out on Route Michigan. Um, one of the lieutenants I spoke to who, who um, was in this company said that since they were under so much stress and, but had really no way to, to respond to it, he would cry himself to sleep every night. this impossible situation where they're seeing their friends killed and don't have uh, ways to respond. 
someone from Vietnam told me this when he heard me read this. He's like, oh, well, yeah, it's just the, the old rule, golden rule of the infantry. Do unto others before they do unto you. What, what a lot of times guys did is, is if there was doubt, uh, they would um, shoot. Um, and a number of guys told me if there was a, if you got hit by a bomb attack, you would just fire in every direction, you know, pretty indiscriminately. Eastridge told me that uh, guys in the platoon called it the death velocity. Um, guys in, the, in this company and in other companies in the battalion and in other battalions in the region started carrying uh, tasers so that they could um, shock some of the Iraqis there. And it, they saw it as, as being better than having to shoot them or beat them up uh, because it, it, uh, yeah, it was slightly more humane. Um, so they were put in really tough situations and, and reacted in equally tough ways. Um, I want to read you something that is from a sister battalion, but goes to this idea of how do you react to this, this impossible situation. Um, and there's one more vocab word. I talk about Bradley's. That's a very that's sort of a light tank troop carrier. morning of June 20th, 2005, 30 days before the platoon was scheduled to go home, they headed out in two Bradleys to search for a wanted terrorist on a patchwork of farms along the Euphrates River, northeast of Ramadi. Anthony Marquez and the rest of the platoon cordoned off the area and went door to door for hours, questioning the locals. They never found their man. Like dozens of times before, the target was either no longer there or was never there or was just hiding in plain sight. In the noon heat, platoon leaders suggested they cross a fallow field to search another of cluster, cluster of houses 100 meters away. So the platoon filed through the open stretch of dirt on foot, on foot, leaving the Bradleys on the other side of the field. About halfway across the field, a single rifle crack echoed across the, the dirt. And, 23 year old and a 23-year-old specialist from Indiana collapsed on the ground. A bullet had hit just under the rim of his helmet, in the soft part of his skull between his eye and his ear. He died before he hit the ground, Marquez said of his friend. Immediately, the platoon circled their guns in a death bus and fired in all directions, even though there was no obvious target. Part of the idea was behind the death blossom was to defend against incoming attacks. Part of it was to teach the locals a lesson. Part of it, especially if a soldier was wounded, was out of sheer rage. It was their standard reaction, Marquez said. If anyone was around, that was their fault, he said. We smoked them. Machine guns pelted the walls and roof lines of the surrounding houses with such a constant roar that it was impossible to tell if anyone was shooting back. Marquez raised a grenade launcher and, and lobbed one fist-sized bomb after another into the surrounding neighborhood until he was all out of grenades. Then the Bradleys rolled in, each armed with a stunningly lethal 25-millimeter chain gun capable of firing 200 high-explosive tank-killing rounds per minute. Their turrets came alive with an ominous whir 
and the heavy pounding of the big guns thundered over the field as shells shattered the neighborhood, crumbling walls and setting fire to cars. Each Bradley typically carries about 900 rounds for its big guns. In a matter of minutes, both had exhausted all their ammunition, pummeling the tiny village. I can't tell you how many civilians were in the area, another soldier in the platoon said, but we leveled it, totally. There's no record of that ever happening anywhere. There was no one to tell that story except for these guys. Um, and I think without stories like that, we have a very difficult understanding of, of what it was like for these guys to come home to the United States and try and, uh, you know, live here as, as normal citizens again. So 30 days later, all these guys did go home. Um, and I, uh, one of the planes, I don't know if they did this for all of them, but on one of the planes, when you got off the plane in Colorado Springs, there was two tables. The first table, you handed in your weapon. At the second table, McDonald's gave you a cheeseburger and welcomed you back to the United States. Um, and a lot of the welcome back stuff was sort of like that. It was ceremonial. Uh, it, was, it was really nice gestures of people showing appreciation, but it wasn't really an idea of, like, of people having thought through, okay, when we have these guys come back, what do we need to do to make sure they're, they're healthy, that they have the resources to adjust, and that they have the, the education that they know what to expect so that they can help themselves. It just wasn't there. Um, and so a lot of these guys, a few months after getting back, started having issues with not being able to sleep, with nightmares, flashbacks, sudden anger, depression, paranoia. A lot of them were treating this, their depression and their nightmares with drugs or alcohol, and usually a good amount of both. Uh, a lot of them were treating their paranoia by carrying around a loaded weapon all the time. Uh, and it doesn't take too long of mixing those two to end up in jail. I'm just going to go through a couple of the guys that I mentioned and let you know what happened to them after that tour. Um, Josh Butler, who, who did CPR for his sergeant that died, uh, got into cocaine and started carrying a gun everywhere. He was having nightmares and having violent fights with his wife. Uh, he didn't want to go back to Iraq for the next tour, so he asked his friends to shoot him. And his friends, uh, Jose Barco and, and uh, Kenny Eastridge, did shoot him through the leg, and he thought that would get him out of, of uh, duty. It only got him out for a couple days, but he was later kicked out um, uh, for testing positive for cocaine. As far as I know, he was never offered any um, drug treatment. Um, Jose Barco, the guy who was badly burned by the car that landed on him, um, got skin grafts, came back to Fort Carson, and really wanted to go back with his unit. He wanted to go back to Iraq. He felt like he had, he had not even really seen the war because he'd been wounded so early. Um, he was technically too win wounded to go back because a lot of the areas where he was burned, he couldn't sweat. But he... He uh, sort of talked his way into the platoon anyway and deployed with them again when they went back. Um, platoon Sergeant Tim Strickland, who uh, had his hands and his legs uh, wounded, um, he made a full recovery, went back to Iraq again in 2006 and got blown up again. Um, he's now out of the Army and retired, um, but not, it has made a, a pretty good recovery. Uh, Anthony Marquez, the guy who... Um, talked about the death blossom in the field. Um, he was actually shot by his own men later that day, accidentally. 
uh, almost died, did not, made more or less a full recovery, but along the way really started to tr uh, struggle with PTSD. And in 2006, he uh, murdered a, a guy in a, a marijuana deal gone bad in Widefield. Uh, and Kenny Eastridge, this guy in the photo, this is when they came home. Um, he was really happy to be home. Um, these are s some of his friends. You can see this is an, an auditorium at Fort Carson where they've hung up all sorts of welcome banners. And they had a big welcome back. But like the others, he... Um, drifted into sort of depression and paranoia, carrying guns, drinking too much. Um, about a year after he got back, not quite, he was arrested for uh, pointing a gun at his girlfriend during a fight. He bailed out, um, and while awaiting trial, instead of waiting around in Colorado Springs for trial, he just went back to, they just deployed him back to Iraq. This is 2006. Kenny again. This is, I believe, this is in Kuwait, but it might be in Baghdad. On the way back to Iraq for the second tour. Um, if the first first tour was bad, the second tour was even worse. Um, they uh, were essentially sent to um, protect the the worst neighborhood in Baghdad during the worst time of the war. Um, and uh, were encountered bombs almost every day. And not only that, but uh, in this corner of Baghdad, Sunnis and, and Shia were so busy trying to murder each other that they often would spend the beginning part of the day picking up uh, mutilated bodies that were left overnight by the, the, sort of the warring factions. Kenny really started to uh, lose it here. Um, he became more aggressive, uh, more depressed, more nihilistic. He sort of had decided already that he was uh, going to hell, and so he, he decided that he would just take as many people with him as he could before he went. So I'm going to read you a story from late in the tour. By the summer of 2007, Eastridge's running tally of confirmed kills hovered at around 70. He shot everything, even dogs and cats. His command put him on radio duty or gate guard duty, to keep him from causing too much harm. But with the constant casualties from snipers and IEDs in Baghdad, troop numbers were dwindling. Humvees designed for five people were often rolling with only three. Non-combat soldiers were shifted into combat positions. At one point, the battalion, which was all men, even had a few women from a neighboring supply company running gun turrets on their Humvees. And so Easters kept being sent out on combat missions until the day it became clear that it would have to stop. That day in June 2007, Eastridge, Eastridge's platoon pointed their convoy into the heart of Baghdad to a place sniper team to place a sniper team in a bullet-riddled, burned-out bell tower of an old church. It was a rare, nice morning in Baghdad, sunny but not too hot, with a breeze that had dashed away some of the normally fetid smell of standing sewage and burning garbage. In the sun-bleached street, women in headscarves chatted in a doorway. A gang of boys chased a soccer ball up and down the broken pavement. Several families were outside barbecuing. On the corner, someone was selling grilled chicken. The crowd milling in the street was a sign that the chance of an attack was low. 
Eastridge was a gunner in his lieutenant's truck, and as usual, he was fighting with him. The officer was telling Eastridge he could not leave the truck during this mission under any circumstances. Eastridge was disagreeing. I was telling him what a coward he was and that I would fuck him up one day, Eastridge said, recalling the morning. When we parked the trucks, I told him, as soon as you walk around that corner, I'm going to kill all these people in the street. The lieutenant gave Eastridge a, yeah, whatever, kind of look and got out of the truck and left with the rest of the platoon to go to the church. Eastridge told the, tr the driver of the Humvee to put some killing music on the iPod. The angry riffs of a heavy metal band called Drowning Pool rumbled through the speakers. The song was called Let the Bodies Hit the Floor. As the guitar started to thrum, Eastridge scanned the street with the barrel of his heavy machine gun. A boy crossed the alley to bring a, a tray of tea to a group of men in long cotton shirts sitting in the shade of an ancient palm. The men talked slowly and sipped their, their tea. Then Eastridge started shooting. He pumped a long, loud burst into the palm tree just above the heads of the men drinking tea. He said later he was not sure why he did it. After being in Iraq for two tours, he had learned that asking why didn't matter a whole lot. The shots echoed up the street, followed immediately by a rip ripple of panic. People scurried for cover, ducking into doorways or down alleys. The soccer boys broke into a run. The women who had been chatting in the shade ducked inside. People piled into cars and started to speed away. And then Eastridge started to really panic. He had meant the burst of bullets to be a, jer a joke, something to piss off his lieutenant. Instead, he had unleashed chaos. The battalion had imposed a vehicle ban on the neighborhood to protect against car bombs and drive-by shootings. Now, suddenly, in the mayhem he had crea created, fleeing cars were swarming the streets everywhere. The damaged parts of Eastridge's brain that normally could tell friend from foe faltered. He swung his gun and centered it on the first moving car he saw. It was almost reflex. In his mind, after spending 20 months in Iraq, every vehicle on the road was potentially packed with explosives. His friends were on foot around the corner. He had to protect them, he thought. His gun was built to spray 850 bullets per minute. A three-second burst could waste everybody in a car. Eastridge peppered the streets off and on for 20 minutes, shooting almost 1,700 rounds. Yells kept crackling over the radio for him to cease fire. He screamed, negative, negative, I have cars on the street. It was insane. It was crazy. I completely lost it he said later. Asked how many people he thought he'd killed that day, he said, I don't know. Not that many, I don't think. Maybe a dozen. I tried to talk to his battalion commander about this months later. He assured me that none of this ever happened. I am going to go forward. This is later in the tour. You can, you can see that Kenny Eastridge is starting to he lost a lot of weight by the end of the tour. He also befriended this guy who's got his arm around him. His name is Louis uh, Bressler. Both of them uh, were sent home from Iraq because they were too mentally unstable to be there, and so they sent them to Colorado Springs, uh, and both were eventually uh, arrested for murder. So I'm just going to read you one scene from when these guys got together when they got back.
Kenny Eastridge pulled his friend and fellow machine gunner Lewis Bressler into the back room of Bressler's apartment on the east side of Colorado Springs and closed the door. It was October 26, 2007. Both soldiers were dressed head to toe in black. Eastridge had a knife in his pocket and a silver 38 revolver in his waistband. He looked at Bressler and said, What are you doing inviting him? In the next room, one of their medics, Bruce Bastion, slouched on the couch watching TV, wearing white pants and a bright yellow sweatshirt. Eastridge was planning a robbery that night, and the arrival of the medic had thrown a wrench into his plans. Not only was Bastion known in the platoon as un inept and untrustworthy, Eastridge told Bressler, but he was also dressed like a canary. Eastridge told Bressler, Eastridge looked at Bressler and quietly, through a clenched jaw, said, He's not coming. Don't worry, Bressler said calmly as he tucked a black 45 semi automatic into his belt. I know him. We've been hanging out. We've done shit together. He's cool. He was in my platoon in Iraq. I know he's not cool, Eastridge shot back. No, we've been hanging out. We've done shit together, Bressler said. Way more ser serious shit than this. Trust me, he's cool. And I say in the part that I've, I'm leaving out here that in the months before this, uh, Bastion and Bressler have, have killed a guy and, and shot two other guys. Look, I don't even want you to get involved in this. I can't share the money. I need it all, Eastridge said. Don't even trip. We'll do it. You can keep the money, Bressler said. I don't care. Well, if you don't want the money, then what's the point, Eastridge said. Just to do it, Bressler said. Look, it's my guns, my car. If we're going to use my shit, you have to let me come. Eastridge could see he was not going to win. Fine, he said, but if Bastion's going to come... It's not going to be in white sweatshirts and a yellow shirt. Eastridge dug out some dark clothes and threw them in the heap at the medic's lap. As they walked to the car, Eastridge also tossed Bastion a four-inch folding combat knife. For more than a week, Eastridge had been devising a string of armed robberies he hoped would help him get back on his feet. Since coming back from Iraq, he'd been on the run from the law and the army. He had no money. He had no job skills. He wanted wanted to scrape enough cash together to get a small apartment where he could live with his girlfriend until he figured out what to do next. So he mapped out a series of heists as if he were planning raids in Baghdad. One idea was to steal a car, crash it through the front of a sportsman's warehouse in the middle of the night, and grab armloads of shotguns, rifles, and cash. He had driven Humvees through walls in Iraq before. He knew how easy it was. The whole thing would take just minutes. They could easily sell the guns to other lethal warriors. Another idea was to knock off a bank, infantry style, bursting through the door and moving to the corners as if they were clearing an insurgent stronghold. Stick a rifle in the teller's face, bag the money, and get out. But the idea Easters decided to try first was the simplest, safest, and the most likely to land a large, instantaneous payoff. They would stake out one of the Tejon Street bars where soldiers burned thousands of dollars a night on drinks. When the manager left with the receipts after closing, they would pull a gun and grab the money. Compared to what they did in Iraq, it would be easy. After staking out a few places, Easters decided to hit Eden, a club on the, in a renovated stone church just a block off Tejon Street. On the night of October 26, the three soldiers, now all wearing black, piled into a new Suzuki Forenza Bressler had bought after getting back from Iraq. 
they drove downtown, cruised up Tejon Street, past the crowds and ever-present police cars outside Rum Bay, and they turned onto a cross street called Pikes Peak Avenue and pulled into a dark lot behind Evie. Everything seemed to go perfectly that night. Not long after the bar closed at 2 a.m., a lone woman came out of the back door with a money bag so stuffed with cash that she couldn't fit it in her purse and had to clumsily jam it in her jacket. The three watched her walk down the alley and get into a Range Rover. Bressler quietly pulled out a few cars behind and tailed the Range Rover north several miles to a cluster of two-story apartments. On the way, Eastridge went over the plan. Bressler would stay in the car, he and Bastion would sneak up behind her infantry style, low and silent, using hand signals to communicate. No shooting, he said. They would just grab the money and take off. The Range Rover pulled into a spot next to the apartments, and Bressler parked a dozen spaces away. Eastridge and Bastion slipped out. Eastridge crept low behind the cars, staying out of sight. He was just a car away from the Range Rover, so close he could see the club manager get out with her big bag of money when suddenly Bastion came running up in plain sight, yelling for her to get down. The club manager jumped back in the SUV and slammed it into reverse. Eastridge had to jump out of the way of the screeching tires. He watched the SUV with the money bag peel out into the night. I fucking hate you, Eastridge said as the three of them drove away empty-handed. He was turned around in the passenger seat, pointing Bressler's silver revolver at Bastion and lambasting him for ruining the heist. Bastion tried to make up excuses. He said he wasn't to blame. He swore he would make it up to Eastridge. He'd do another robbery and give him all the money. Stop talking, Eastridge said. Don't ever talk to me again. He turned to Bressler and he said, This is all your fault. I told you you was a piece of shit. Bressler stared silently ahead as he steered towards his apartment through a deteriorating neighborhood of cheap ranch houses just east of the center of Colorado Springs. Bastion was still, still trying to shovel excuses from, at Eastridge from the back seat. Eastridge was still berating him. Up ahead, Bastion saw a young woman walking on the side of the road in the dark. He said he would rob her to make up for his mistake. Dude, it's five in the fucking morning in the poorest neighborhood in the city, Eastridge said. This girl's got nothing. She's broke, I guarantee you. Pull over anyway, Bastion said. Whatever she's got, I'll give it to you. I don't want it. She ain't got nothing. Eastridge said. Shut up. Just stop talking. We're going to drop you off at your... Eastridge was interrupted by the sound of the woman hitting the hood of the Suzuki. Bressler had swerved into the shoulder and clipped her. She flew up on the hood and slammed into the windshield. The woman's name was Erica Ham. She was 19 and had just graduated from high school. At home, she had a five-month-old son. She was dressed in dark blue scrubs, and was on her way to a bus stop at dawn to catch a ride to work at a local retirement home. When the car hit her, she thought it was an accident. It never occurred to her that someone pur would purposefully run her down. The loud thump of the girl hitting the hood forced Eastridge to turn from yelling at Bastion. He was shocked to see that her face pressed up against the windshield and yelled, Stop the car! Stop the car! Bressler slammed on the brakes, and the girl flew off onto the pavement. Bastion jumped out of the back, back seat and tried to grab her backpack. At first, Erica Ham thought Bastion would, had gotten out to help her, and then he started punching her in the head. I ain't got no money. What do you want? Ham stammered as Bastion tugged at the bag. 
one of the things that Iraq does, Eastridge said years later in prison, is warp a soldier's sense of what he called escalation of force. Before Iraq, if someone had talked shit to me, he said, I might have ignored them or insulted them back. If someone had pushed me, I might have pushed them back. In Iraq, that kind of tit for tat is dangerous. If someone is acting aggressive in any way, you just kill them and end it. If you don't, you're taking a real risk. And that's how it is with some guys when they come back, too. When Ham started pushing Bastion away, he pulled out the knife that Eastridge had given him earlier that night and slashed Ham across the forehead, opening the skin to the bone. Then he stabbed her in the left eye, then in the left arm, then three times in the ribs, and left her on the street for dead. Air whimpered out of a hole Bastion had cut in her lung as she gazed up at him in shock. Bastion ripped the bag away and took a step back towards the car. Ham started to get up, and Eastridge jumped out with a pistol and said, Get on the ground. They all climbed in the car and sped off. Check it out, I stabbed that bitch, Bastion said as they pulled away. In the backpack, he found only a few dirty baby clothes, a can of spaghetti, and a Bible that Ham liked to read at work. slides here. This is uh, second tour again. Kenny uh, standing over one of his kills. Uh, he said and other soldiers confirmed to me that uh, he had one of the highest counts in the battalion in terms of guys he had shot. This is Kenny towards the very end of the tour um, uh, right around when he did that shooting. I, you can't really see it. Sorry, the resolution's not good enough, but he's gotten a bunch of new tattoos. Uh, the one on his neck says to kill, ready to die. This is Kenny when he was planning the uh, armed robberies. Back in Colorado Springs, uh, this is actually the day he turned himself in after the stabbing. It had scared him so much that he turned himself into the army and also uh, to jail. So after the night that I described, um, all three of these guys were arrested. Here's Kenny. All three of them, the young, sort of rosy-cheeked one is the medic. Um, they were all arrested for killing another soldier on the west side. Um, and in all told, the investigation revealed that they had stabbed him, killed two soldiers, um, shot another soldier, and, and shot at a couple houses. They also did an investigation, um, Fort Carson, when they arrested these guys, because the medic had said that there had also been war crimes uh, committed in Iraq, uh, but they never uh, really turned up anything. Their investigation lasted, I have it on DVD, 35 minutes. Um, so after these guys were arrested, as I mentioned in the beginning, uh, two guys from Scout Platoon were also arrested for shooting folks. Um, a guy beat his girlfriend uh, to death. Um, another guy uh, slit a woman's throat. And all of this uh, would be so dark that it wouldn't even be worth talking about if it hadn't been for the fact that the guy in charge of Fort Carson at that moment, a man named General Mark Graham, uh, did something really courageous. Uh, Graham had started out the war with two grown sons, both officers. Uh, by the time he took over Fort Carson, both of his sons were dead. One 
uh, had been blown up en route Michigan, right near where Kenny Eustrich was blown up. Uh, another had killed himself uh, while at ROTC. And when both of his sons died, I think he sort of unconsciously started looking at all soldiers as, as his sons. And he had had some, he had firsthand knowledge of sort of the horror of what's going on in Iraq and also the misunderstanding of sort of the silent suffering that can go on back in garrison. And so when all this stuff started happening, he could have just stuck with the bad apple line, but he didn't. He ordered a, a very extensive study. And I know that ordering the study doesn't sound very brave, but when you do that, you do it knowing that when the study comes out, it's probably not going to be that good, and you're going to have to stand at one of these and answer questions from the press. Uh, and he was willing to do that. Uh, it was essentially, it could have been the end of his career. It wasn't. But what they learned uh, was that their uh, system for welcoming these guys back, for identifying who needs help, for actually getting them the help they need, was broken. And not only that, but that there was this uh, deep-rooted stigma against getting help. And it's something that we all understand. We all in the civilian world have stigmas against mental health, too. Um, but it was keeping guys who obviously had traumas from, from getting the help they needed. And the great thing about this study is once it identified what was wrong, he very publicly started talking about that we need to fix all these things. We need to break down the stigma. We need to fix the mental health screening. And it wasn't just talk. Uh, it was programs, and it was money in a big way. Um, he doubled, uh, actually, I think more than doubled the amount of mental health uh, workers at Fort Carson who could help these guys. Uh, substance abuse screening, which is really important. A lot of these guys were just slipping under the cracks and then uh, getting either arrested or thrown out. Um, their staff has tripled and is doing much better work coordinating with the hospital. Um, and they created a lot of programs that taught soldiers that what happens to you after war is not necessarily a disorder. It's not necessarily post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a legitimate war wound uh, and one that you can heal from, you know, if you get help. He, Graham described it to me as, it's like being shot. Soldiers understand that if your buddy's shot, you need to get him the care. But we need to get soldiers to understand that if your buddy you know, is suffering from some of these, uh, let's call them psychological war wounds. You need to get them care for that too, because it can be just as deadly. Um, it took a while for Graham's programs to, to really gain traction. I, I think probably one of the saddest things for him to say about Fort Carson is that the year he left, which was 2009, was a record year for suicides. But since then, a lot of these programs have really fully come online. And in 2010, suicide has declined by almost half. Uh, that's huge. And really goes to not only him, but people who worked below him who really believed in what he was doing and that, that we need to help guys. Now, a lot has also changed with the Lethal Warriors. The unit is still around. And in 2009, it went to the worst place in Afghanistan continuing its perfect record of going to terrible places. But when it came back, the response was very different. There, because there was better screening, because there was um, better programs in place, 50% more of the soldiers 
were identified as potentially having PTSD and sent to counseling. Um, and because of that, perhaps, 60% uh, fewer soldiers were sent to Cedar Springs, our local psychological hospital, or psychiatric hospital, for um, what they call, uh, I think they call them acute events, uh, attempted suicide, um, or talking, having suicidal or homicidal ideations, meaning that they got people into treatment early, and so it never got that bad. And those are, are really huge numbers, and maybe the most telling one is in the since these guys have been back now, uh, there has not been any murders, whereas before there was five. So that's that's huge. I mean, I'm not arguing that everybody who, who spent a year fighting in a really bad part of Afghanistan is okay, but I am saying that, that the Army, because these stories were not ignored, because people looked at them critically and decided, what do we do? They have done things to try and start helping these people. There's a long way to go, but um, we're making some progress. And I think part of it is because there's another guy in the room here named uh, Andrew Pagani who's in the book. He fed all sorts of stories of stuff like this uh, to journalists like me and folks at the New York Times and Salon and bigger places than the Gazette. Um, and because of that stuff, because of people like Mark Graham, because this problem wasn't allowed to be ignored, there's real progress, which I think is good for, for all of us, especially the soldiers there. Um, so I'm going to stop there. I think I have one more photo of, of Kenny Eastridge today in prison. He's, he's, um, I asked him what he's going to do when he gets out. He said he might join the uh, Foreign Legion because he hears there are still people.